Hi, I'm Jay Miller. Today I'm with my colleague Ekaputra Tupamehu, and today we're going to be talking about heteroglossia, which is what Paul calls speaking in tongues. Okay, today on this episode of George Fox Talks, I'm joined by my colleague Ekaputra Tupamahu. Eka is an assistant professor of New Testament mm -hmm. and a director of the master's program at Portland Seminary, um, which is part of George Fox University. And today we're going to be talking about his new book, Contesting Languages, Heteroglossia and the Politics of Language in the Early Church. We're going to get into what heteroglossia is and politics a little bit later. Um, but first, I just wanted to jump into um, the passage of Scripture that Aka is taking up here. This is 1 Corinthians 14. So this is a New Testament epistle. Um, I think it's fair to say one of the most prominent of the New Testament epistles, right? Yep. Um, by Paul. Um, and this is the chapter. Um, those of you who are familiar with it are going to recall. It's a chapter known best for having kind of Paul's teaching on speaking in tongues. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into what speaking in tongues means. That's part of what you're yeah. looking at, what that actually means. That can mean different things to different people. But essentially, um, Paul's summary of encountering the phenomena of speaking in tongues in the church of Corinth is to say, it's okay to speak in tongues, but you need to be interpreted if you're going to speak in tongues. And even better than speaking in tongues is having the gift of prophecy. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair summary, would mm -hmm. you say, of the mm -hmm. passage? So we're going to dig a lot more into that. But um, before we do, I just wanted to ask you, Aka, what was it that initially drew you to 1 Corinthians 14? Why is it such a compelling passage of scripture for you to think about and write about? Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. Um, I grew up in the hostel. So any text on speaking in tongues... Mm. It's always compelling to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, growing up, always I always understood tongue as a, as an ecstatic speech because that's precisely what I saw mm -hmm. um, in Pentecostal churches these days. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people call it glossolalic phenomenon mm -hmm. or the phenomenon of glossolalia. But another experience for me is that I am also an immigrant to the United States. Mm. So I was a pastor of a church in Southern California. Uh, and uh, I could see on a daily basis how people struggle, particularly immigrants, struggle with the English language mm -hmm. in order to just operate on a daily basis, mm -hmm. right? And then the, the, inability to, the inability to speak English is not just, affect the, the way they communicate with other people, but also it affects their socioeconomic condition as well. Mm -hmm. So I begin to like ask myself, like if language really a universal phenomenon, does did the early Christians also grapple or wrestle with this issue of linguistic diversity mm -hmm. like what language do you have to use when you gather with when you get together mm -hmm. what language do you have to use in public spaces for instance mm -hmm. and then i begin to find out that you know everybody who study greek would know that the word glossa in greek means language mm. because greek doesn't have a word for language but this word like you know, we use for this physical tongue yeah. So, you know, they use mm. the word glossa, they use the word like phone, mm -hmm. sound, 
Glossa, we still it. Tongue, we still have it until today in English, though. Like when somebody say, "What is your mother tongue?" It's not your mother physical tongue. Yeah, or I'm biting my tongue. It's a biting my yeah. tongue or something like. So we are referring yeah. that to language. So the, the 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 remnant of that understanding of tongue as language mm. still remains in English, mm-hmm. right? So I begin to look into this and was like. This phenomenon, the, the the phenomenon of glossolalia, of like unintelligible experience, mm-hmm. didn't exist in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. So scholars try to somehow look for parallels between this glossolalic phenomenon with anything in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. It is hard to find any, even in the Hebrew Bible, you don't have any phenomenon mm. of like gibberish speaking, like people fall, falling on the street or on the ground mm-hmm. and basically, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know, having this sort of unintelligible bubbling of yeah. unknown words. Mm-hmm. Because of that, and I was like, the, the word... Glossa itself means language. Mm-hmm. And when I look into Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 shows that people, right. be, when they when they were filled in the spirit, they begin to speak in their own tongues. And then in the later part of the book of Acts, the hearers actually hear them speak in their own language. Mm-hmm. So in, in a way that the, 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 the book of Acts actually define speaking in tongues as a linguistic phenomenon, as a phenomenon of language. Yeah. So that gets me interested. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is something here that can be recovered. Yeah. Particularly when you see texts, texts, texts like you know Acts chapter 2 and First uh, Corinthians chapter 14. Mm-hmm. And most of the time in, when, when I begin to do sort of a closer look into scholarship, most of the time people who argue for tongues as unintelligible, Uh, phenomenon would mm-hmm. build a case not on the basis of Acts, but on the basis of First Corinthians, mm-hmm. because in First Corinthians Paul says that if you speak in tongues, nobody understands you. Right, it needs to be translated. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. people would just make a make a make a conclusion that because nobody understands, then this is an unintelligible speech. Yeah, right. Yeah. So they they base that argument. On Pauline text, and yeah. I said, like, "Oh, we need to look into these texts because if glossa really means language, can we read it the other way that mm-hmm. this is actually not a bubbling of unknown words or bubbling of unintelligible mm-hmm. words, but this is just a normal multilingual situation yeah. in uh, the in the city of Corinth, particularly in." The, Roman period in the first century. Yeah, and we're going to dive into all the kind of history of interpretation mm-hmm. of this passage. And I think, I mean, I think it's really fascinating to hear your journey because what I hear you saying is you noticed uh, a discrepancy between your contemporary experience of tongues, tongues mm-hmm. and speaking in tongues, glossolalia, charismatic church, and then what you were seeing in the Bible. Yep. And it sounds like one of the ways you came to make sense of that discrepancy and make sense of scripture was through your own experience then, realizing, yeah. oh, there's another aspect of my experience that's relevant here. Exactly. And I wonder if before we dive into the interpretive history, could we just say a little bit, like for me coming from a non-charismatic background, coming from a Quaker background, which I think is some interesting connections, but not a speaking in tongues connection. And you've talked about speaking in tongues as sort of unintelligible speech. Could you say a little bit more, could we talk more about what, if someone went to a charismatic church today that practiced speaking in tongues, 
um, there would be an experience of people using words that are intelligible. I've sometimes people describe it as like maybe like a personal prayer language too. Is that, could you just help me coming from a non-charismatic background? What's the contemporary experience of speaking in tongues? I'm sure it's very complex, but it just is. kind of briefly. There is a whole body of scholarship around that, yeah. right? Uh, and my argument in this book is that, yes, that is a real phenomenon, particularly mm. in the New not, not in the New Testament, particularly in the contemporary Pentecostal yes. uh, phenomenon, Pentecostal space, right? Mm -hmm. It's a real phenomenon. Yeah. But the question is this, is these tongues just as the tongues in the New Testament? Right. My argument is that the tongues, quote unquote, the glossolalic experience in Pentecostal movement these days is a different phenomenon from mm. what you see in the Bible. Yeah particularly in, in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Yeah. Because the, the argument that I'm trying to put out here is that the, the tongues in the New Testament is a multilingual phenomenon, mm -hmm. whereas the tongues in the Pentecostal movement today, they call it tongues. Yeah. Right? Mm. Is an until an unintelligible speech. Yeah. And these two cannot be confused. Right. So you're not necessarily trying to debunk or demystify contemporary charismatic no, experience. No, that's not the point. As much as you just say, what we're seeing in the, these are kind of different conversations. These are two different conversations, yeah. Yeah. So, so my focus is not to theorize or to think through an intelligible experience. Some people look into like, right. you know, psychoanalysis and things like that. There's sure. a whole discussion around it, right? Right. Uh, that's not my, that's not my goal. Yeah. My goal is it's a different conversation altogether. Right. That would be more of a contemporary, a question for a contemporary Contemporary scholar. scholars. Yeah. yeah. Um, so getting back to this biblical passage, can you tell us a little bit more about the history of how people have interpreted this kind of ambiguous seeming to us language of speaking in tongues? Um, you talk about two major schools, schools of thought, the missionary expansionist mode and the romantic nationalist mode. Could, so could you say a little bit about both those things and how, how people have interpreted this text before? So, yeah. Um, so I big, after I look into this text, First Corinthians and the book of Acts, I begin to look into how these texts have been interpreted throughout the history. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a lot of work, like a lot of literatures to read. And I found out that that in the early stage of the Christian movement, particularly in the third, fourth century, all the way to about late 18th century, mm -hmm. the phenomenon of tongues in the book, of, in particular 1 Corinthians and uh, in the book of Acts or in the New Testament has always been understood as a phenomenon of multilingualism, the gift of language that God gives to, miraculously, yeah? God gives miraculously to the believers or to, you know, to, to Christians in order to preach the, the gospel to different group of people. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, language barrier is real. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Language barrier is real. That's why it, it requires a sort of a, you know, a, a special intervention, a special mm -hmm. sort of divine intervention in order to cross that, to cross that uh, linguistic barrier. Yeah. So I call it the missionary expansionist movement precisely because the function in, in this particular understanding, mode, I call it mode of reading. Mm -hmm. In this particular mode of reading, the function of tongue is to 
expand, to preach the gospel mm -hmm. to people from diverse linguistic mm -hmm. backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So it's it, this trend you can see consistently throughout in the beginning from from the from the early stage of the readers of you know of, the, of sorry early stage of Christian uh, history or church history to about late 18th century. Yeah, you could almost say it's the historic understanding. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's the know, historic in, understanding yeah. and also it's pre-modern understanding. Yeah, yeah. Right? If you mm. if you see enlightenment as the marker of right. of modernism, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So the the change began to take place in late 18th century in which scholars particularly German philosophers and biblical scholars begin to revisit the text on speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I noticed in in in, they, in the way they read the text of the New Testament is that they were deeply influenced by German nationalism mm. and German romanticism. Mm -hmm. So there is a, 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 a German philosopher in the late 18th century named Johann Herder. People always call him the father of German romanticism. Mm -hmm. So if you study a little bit philosophy, you will know that you know, romanticism plays so much emphasis on feeling. And he argues that because language comes out of human feelings, right, then the marker of a nation mm. is this collective feeling, mm -hmm. which is their language. So, mm -hmm. you know, he was actually looking into American experience and he was like, these people base their experience on race, and he was very critical of, you know, uh, you know, mm. national construction on the basis of racial difference. Yeah, mm. like in because American national project is white project through and through. Right, right. For him, no, it has to be language. Yeah. So mm. the, the so the early early nationalist movement in the in Germany based the national identity on linguistic unity. Mm -hmm. Because why? Because this is a collective feeling. Right. Right, so he looked into the New Testament and he was like, "These people, they are ein folk. They are mm. one people. Mm -hmm. They cannot speak different languages." Mm. Yeah. So, and then mm. he said, "Oh no, no, this is his." At the end of his essay, he said, uh, "People probably has misunderstood have misunderstood this particular passage. Mm -hmm. This is not a multilingual phenomenon. Mm -hmm. This is actually." an explosion of their feeling. Mm -hmm. So he began to insert the idea that tongues is the expression of human feeling. Yeah. It's less about the words, it's less about the speech. It's more about the feeling. Yeah, yeah. But then he argues that for, for Herder, the higher a language is, mm. the more engaging that language to human feeling. Mm. So, so poetic language, because poetic sure. language is yeah. free and poetic language is... Uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, is filled with human, you know, human feeling and emotion. Yeah. So he argues that maybe what happened in the book of Acts and and First Corinthians is this precisely I, the idea of uh, you know the poetic language. So he said the, is is the explosion of the excitement in a poetic language. Mm -hmm. Now, did this idea that this is an explosion of human feeling, begin to take its sort of its force in the 19th century mm -hmm. of German scholarship. By the end of, of 19th century, the discussion on tongues have been on 
concentrated only was concentrated only on feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That this is no longer a linguistic phenomenon for Heather is still still like poetic language. At the end of 19th century, scholars argued that no, no, this is even not language at all. This yeah. is just pure unconscious sort of bubbling of deeply emotional expression. Yeah. Yeah. And it it gains its 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 popularity, particularly in the 20th century uh, biblical scholarship. Mm-hmm. It's almost like this sense of in kind of ancient poetry idea of evoking the muse. Like mm-hmm. it's almost more. There's an element of like being divinely inspired as well. Yeah. Too. Um, but that like you kind of have that divine inspiration in you. And it's just it's more about the emotion, the expression, than any kind of intelligibility. Yeah. It's interesting to see language getting separate from intelligibility in that kind of move. Is that right? Begin slowly. Yeah. Yeah. Slowly. But to a point in which they they actually argue this is not language at all. Yeah. Right. This is just feeling. Yeah. Hmm. This is just excitement. Yeah. So that's why, that's why in in the 19th century, they call tongue speaker enthusiast. Oh. So if you read, if you read, uh, you know, 20th century, uh, commentaries or the discussion on tongues and they when they call these people tongue speaker as enthusiasts mm-hmm. you can find its roots actually in the 19th century yeah. German nationalist and romantic reading mm-hmm. of this particular text mm-hmm. so that's the interpretive background which I think is really helpful because you propose kind of a third model or a third interpretive stance toward this that you call the immigrant or the heteroglossic immigrant Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll unpack that a little bit more, but your central term and really concept for the whole study is this idea of heteroglossia, which is a term um, coined by the Russian th- literary theorist, really, yeah. Bakhtin. Could you tell our audience a little bit about who Bakhtin was and then tell us what what's that concept of heteroglossia mean that's so important to you? Yeah, it's Bakhtin is just like what you say, he's a literary scholar, but he's also a philosopher. Yeah. He was actually trained in in, in philosophy as well, mm-hmm. and by the way, trained in classics too. Mm-hmm. So he's very familiar oh, with he's yeah. very familiar with Roman and Greek literature. Mm. So Bakhtin is, is a very interesting person. Uh, but Bakhtin, when Bakhtin look into the trend of linguistic trend, particularly in the Western world, he's from Russia, mm-hmm. and he 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 look into them and he argues that these people see. Because language, I'm sorry, let me step back a little bit. Because language is always in communication between one person and another. Mm-hmm. And he argues that in in a Western idea of language is that the response, sort of the listener becomes a passive recipient of language. Mm-hmm. Right? So mm-hmm. you just have to understand, you, be, you become decoder instead of encoder of language, you can decoder yeah. of language. Mm-hmm. And he argues, no, what happened in language is not, the listener is not a passive recipient. Right. But the listener is actually an active responder yeah. of language. That's where he thinks like every linguistic linguistic expression or linguistic production is always dialogical. Mm-hmm. Because when I say something, I actually wait for the respond. Yeah. So it's just, just active dialogical. Yeah. The context is giving language its meaning. Yeah. Language isn't just this meaning that's getting pushed toward you. No. It's yeah, the yeah. meaning 
become is in the process in the process in the the process of dialogue so for him meaning is not in in somebody's head yeah meaning takes place in in that space of dialogical uh connection between the speaker and the listener Mm -hmm. so for him it means that you know language is very dynamic so so and then he looked into novel and said novel is filled with this like messy, unending, you know, endless mm. dialogical, polyphonic. So here's a lot of terms that he yeah. used, right? Polyphonic sort of dialogical, you know, relations that are going on. Mm-hmm. But then he argues, he argues precisely because of that, he argues language at its very base is heteroglossic through and through, is diverse through and through. Mm. So if you study Western linguistics, you, you you will come up with, so you will be familiar with the name Ferdinand de Saussure. Mm-hmm. So Saussure argued that language can be divided into two different uh, aspects. Mm-hmm. And he argues one is parole and the other is lang. Lang is the system of signs, mm-hmm. whereas parole is the actual speech. Right, the French words for language, yeah. Yeah, so actual speech, meaning to say that the actual speech is so diverse. And that's why you have to somehow form a system out of mm. this diverse. So for 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 so sure, you cannot study language at the at the parole level. Right. You have to study it at the lung level. Yeah. So Bakhtin look into it in the different into from a different angle. So for Bakhtin, language is actually not lung, not the system. Not the unified yeah. language. Language is actually these diverse speeches that in, in its messy dialogical, right, unending yeah. dialogue. It's kind of language in the street. Language in the street, is, yeah. you know, kind of what Bakhtin's thinking about in that. And also the idea, I think, un, based on my understanding and of reading your book, is that it's kind of language isn't a unitary thing. No. Language is a composite phenomena. For, for Bakhtin, unitary form of language is posited. It's mm-hmm. something that is forced. Yeah. It's speculative. It's speculative, yeah. yeah. It's political. But people might think, even if we don't think about, you know, obviously, whenever we speak a language, we might we might think of the presence of lots of foreign language in English. You know, we might think of Spanish words, German words, French words that have all kind of worked their way into English. And every language is like that. There's no language that's just purely... Um, yeah, standard itself, language. Yes, you know? And even if we think about non not just language, if we think about registers of language, mm-hmm. right? Our languages are made up of different styles of speech. Yeah. So yeah. there's the way we speak to each other on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. There's the way we speak to each other after the podcast. There's the way I speak to my family at home. That's all, for me, that's all in English. Yeah. But to a certain extent, it's heteroglossic because those are all different languages, different languages in and of themselves. In a way. So his, his, yeah. his theory of heteroglossia is very complex. So when most when most people hear the term heteroglossia and knows what what it means they associate with Bakhtin. Yeah. But you actually make this wonderful claim that the Apostle Paul is the one who coins the term heteroglossia in this chapter 14. And so I'm wondering if now that we've set up that background, can you tell us how you interpret that discussion about speaking in tongues? Um, there are a lot of layers to interpretation, but your initial sort of how do you read what it means to be speaking in tongues and what Paul's trying to do with tongues? against that backdrop of heteroglossia for you. Yeah, this is where I think we need to reclaim the term heteroglossia. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the term glossolalia does not exist in the New Testament. Some people actually coin the term synolalia, Hmm. right? 
speaking in foreign language, Sinolalio means hmm. like oh sure, it, it's a yeah. miraculous ability, yeah, yeah, to speak somebody's language. I, I my 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 argument is that you cannot find these two words in the New Testament. What you have in the New Testament, particularly in First Corinthians fourteen, is pre- is this word heteroglossia, yeah. and can we use this? Mm-hmm. Paul actually uses the term. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when he uses the term, he he actually thinks about multiplicity of languages. So, yeah. so what I want the readers of this book to at least pick up is that the idea that tongues probably should not be understood as glossolalia, nor sinolalia, mm-hmm. but maybe we should understand it as a heteroglossia. Mm-hmm. as a diversity of languages. Mm-hmm. So when 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 Paul deals with speaking in tongues, people who speak in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is actually dealing with people who speak diverse languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you make the point in your, we won't go into it here, but in the book you make a lot of very convincing points, to me at least as a generalist reader of Corinth, it, Corinth is a hub of trade, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, you know, there are just a lot of different factors about ancient Corinth that make it very plausible that there would have been people speaking multiple language. Now, so just very concretely, what language is Paul speaking in Corinth and what other languages might he be encountering? Yeah, that, that's the Corinth itself is a Roman colony in mm-hmm. the first century. Yeah. So at one point in the first century, uh, BCE, Romans actually came and destroyed the city all. And then he, and you know, the Roman Roman emperor basically rebuilt that city in 44 BCE. So the city itself, if you're just, just purely on the basis of uh, epigraphic evidence, the city itself, people can, can see that the city at the sort of the, level of the street or people on the street, people would speak Greek mm-hmm. at, on, on the street. But inscription at the centers of the city tend to be in Latin. Mm. So scholars argue that probably what happened is the, lang- the actual language on the street is Greek and the, of, not official, some people have questioned that idea of official language in the ancient world, but the administrative language mm-hmm was in Latin, was Latin mm-hmm. language. Mm-hmm. My argument in this book is that if we can make a case that Corinth is a city of immigrants, meaning to say if we, if we can find indication of uh, Egyptians, of people from different parts of the Mediterranean world, we can argue that their language probably exist in spite of the fact that the inscription do, do not this inscript in, in the evidence in at the level of the inscription do not represent the language why because there's always discrepancy people who study ancient world will know there's always in discre- there's always discrepancy between uh, epigraphic mm-hmm. evidence and the actual language on the street mm-hmm. or and, and the actual because epigraphic evidence tend to represent dominant language. Mm-hmm. Bakhtin and heteroglossia are the background here. So 
What do you actually read Paul as doing in chapter 14 of Corinthians? And what do you think are the political implications there? Because yeah. part of Bakhtin isn't just that uh, language is social, but it's also political. Yeah. So what's your kind of basic interpretation of what Paul's doing here? And what are the political implications of that? So what Paul is doing here, if you read carefully 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is arguing that if you speak in tongues, you will not build anybody. Tongues being another language. Other languages, yeah. yeah. If yeah. you speak different languages or diverse languages, or yeah. I call it minority languages, right. or you know, foreign languages, yeah. uh, you will not build anybody. Yeah. So Paul somehow finds this particular situation of people speaking different languages in the same space to be quite chaotic. So 1 Corinthians 14 is an, is an effort from Paul to bring order back Mm. Remember, he thinks that multilingualism is a chaotic space. Mm -hmm. So we need to bring order. For him, order can only take place when people speak the dominant language, where everybody mm. understands. Mm -hmm. So he said, you know, if you if you speak in tongues, he argues, you have to pray so that you can translate. Mm -hmm. Right? It means it, it. It seems to me like he thinks that people who speak minority language, you can you can learn the dominant language. Pray so God can help you to, to, to speak the dominant, you mean to translate your, mm -hmm. your language into the dominant language. Mm -hmm. And he argues that if you are not translated, then you have to be silent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this is what I see the force of silencing of, of minority languages, of foreign languages in Poland, way of ordering this, this community in Corinth. Mm -hmm. So this is the force of unifying Mm -hmm. by silencing, unifying by silencing the diversity of language. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I mean, it, it's interesting because you're you're kind of flipping the interpretation around, whereas generally I think when we interpret this passage, we want to sort of favor, oh, like what are Paul's rules? Yeah. What does Paul say? Let's do that. And you're saying we should kind of read, we might call it reading against the grain of Paul mm -hmm. or trying to put ourselves in the shoes of Corinthian immigrants and yeah. think about their experience. And in a way that kind of goes back to the missionary expansionist model. You talked about the historic model of understanding this passage and that it's about multiplicity of languages, but instead of reading it from the missionary perspective, we should be reading it from the kind of immigrant church's perspective. Yep. Um, so I just want to flag that as sort of what you're doing there. Um, and it's really, really fascinating. And you don't stop there. You don't just sort of turn the tables and say, Paul's approach here might be too heavy handed. Yeah. You don't stop there. You talk about how different parts of scripture might in a certain way talk back with talk Paul. Talk back to Paul. So could you tell us about those passages of scripture that might be um, responding to Paul's attempt to control and silence yeah. heteroglossia in the Corinthian yeah. church? Let me pick up what you said about, you know, reading from the other side, yeah, right? Yeah. So what I'm trying to do here is to put the readers not at Paul's in 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 Paul's place, but to read it from the perspective of the tongue speaker. Yeah. Not from the perspective of Paul. Right. If I'm the recipient of this particular discourse, mm -hmm. and as an immigrant, I can feel that when somebody comes yeah. and you know, I speak Indonesian language with an Indonesian fellow somewhere in this, you know, in, in, in the campus, in this campus, and somebody comes and says, should, should be translate. 
If you don't say, be quiet, speak mm. English only. Mm. That's that's precisely the force that I can feel and I can sense in 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 Pauline letters. And going back to your question, yes, that it seems like some early Christians, particularly in the first century, look into them and it's like, hmm, maybe this is quite problematic. Mm. So the window for us to see that is in Acts chapter 2, the story of the opening space for diversity of languages mm -hmm. without the requirement of translation. You can see it's the book of Acts is interesting because people can understand without translation. Right. This is kind of the Pentecostal moment. Pentecostal Tongues moment. Tongues of fire, people talking different languages. Mm -hmm. Pentecostal moment. So it's a very, it's radically different narrative from what we see in Acts chapter 14. Mm -hmm. So here, going back to Bakhtin again, what you see is within the New Testament itself, there is a dialogical sort of interaction between right. Paul and Luke, right? Mm -hmm. One says that, no, 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 you have to translate. If you're not translated, if your language is not translated, you have to be silent. And the other one said, no, 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 the spirit can help. Right. And I just want to flag <laughs> there, you know, listeners may be thinking, wait, I thought Paul came after Luke or Acts. Um, and there is, you know, in terms of the way the New Testament canon is organized, the Pauline letters do come after the book of Acts and they're historical. They're kind of, and I guess historically they're talking about the same time essentially because his trip to Corinth is mentioned in the book of Acts, right? I assume. Yeah, so, in, in Acts chapter 18. Right. Mm -hmm. But Paul's writings are the oldest writings in the New Testament. Yes. And that's, that's why we think of Acts as being written Later. after Paul mm -hmm. and being able to respond to him. Yeah. Um, you also point to the end of the Gospel of Mark. Um how do you see the Gospel of Mark ending responding so to the, Paul? So the Gospel of Mark actually also pick up the theme of speaking in tongues. Right. But the, the ending of the Gospel of Mark put it in the mouth of Jesus. Okay, yeah. So it's Jesus who said that you're going to speak in tongues. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So Without any mention of translation. No. You know, without adding that yeah, stipulation. It's actually a gift that you will have, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it's the speech from Jesus. Mm -hmm. So meaning to say that if, if Acts depicted as the work of the Spirit, the, you know, ending of the, it's a whole debate on the ending of the, the Gospel of Mark, whether it's part of Mark or not, it's, it's a whole debate in the scholarship right, itself. Right, right. But, but uh, it, 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 you can see the theme of putting it in the mouth of Jesus, mm -hmm. the speaking tongues. Mm -hmm. So it seems like they come from the same tradition that respond back yeah. to Paul because they come chronologically at the literary level Mm -hmm. later than mm -hmm. Paul. Yeah. And I love the way you put it in the book. You basically say in Corinthians, Paul, um, maybe well-intentioned, but mistaken, you know, we can't really ascribe intentions, sees uh, other languages or language diversity, heteroglossia as problematic, problematic, as a problem. What you say then is in Acts, speaking in tongues gets a numerological reading. Twisted, so it's a yeah. Holy Spirit. So it's seen mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. not a problem, but a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And yeah. then further in the Gospel yeah. of Mark, you say it gets a Christological yeah. spin. Yeah. So um, I just think that's a very compelling way to think about not just talking back, but we can also think about it as theological development, development. in a certain yeah. way. Yeah, I can see um, that, yeah. And I think maybe that's a good place to talk about, you know, for 
for for some listeners, it may feel a little counterintuitive to think, well, wait, are we kind of setting up Paul as wrong and scripture correcting Paul? Um, that may, may be a sort of counterintuitive way of approaching the New Testament for some Christian listeners. And I just wonder if you might talk a little bit more about how you think about um, that kind of dialogic um dynamic in scripture and your interpretive method and why you think that's a fruitful way of approaching interpretation of the New Testament in this issue in particular. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people, particularly people who read the New Testament, forget that this is a also human text mm-hmm. that deals with real human issues, mm. right? Languages are real human issues. Mm-hmm. And they disagree with each other with each other. Yeah. So we always think like New Testament, they're happy with each other, you know, they agree right. with each other, right? Yeah, and, right. So what I see here are two radically different vision of how we deal with multiple multiplicity of languages. Mm-hmm. So it shows that just like us today, wrestling with these real human issues. Uh, we, there are other human, human issues that New, New Testament are dealing with, just like us today they come with different visions mm-hmm. and what we can learn from this different vision. So Pauline vision is the vision that, of what we, I, I call it, you know, moto, monolinguistic, monolanguage, monolingual, sure. monoglossia vision. Yeah. Whereas if you, what you see in the book of Acts is this vision of like, let's open that space. Mm-hmm. Let them express themselves. Yeah. Spirit can help in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm wondering if it's almost kind of a counterintuitive, charismatic reading of this of these challenging texts. In that you're saying, no, what makes this language special isn't glossolia. It's not that it's unintelligible or it's a private prayer language. What makes this language special is that the Holy Spirit is present in this language, and that to me coming from a non-charismatic background seems yeah. like a very charismatic point. Do you think that's true? Is this, it, it, so it, it, even though yeah. in some ways this isn't a traditional Pentecostal reading of tongues, if yeah. I understand, there's a certain kind of, is it right that there's a kind of Pentecostal ethos within it? Oh, I would say it's deeply, it deeply influenced me. But at the same time, it's actually in the text. Right. Yeah. In, in, yeah. in the book of Acts, right? right? It happens when, when they... The, the book Acts chapter two says when they were filled with the spirit. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a very uniquely sort of look and term. Right. Filled with the spirit. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that move is not just my move as a Pentecostal or charismatic person, right? Mm-hmm. That move, you can actually find it in the text. Mm-hmm. Now, whether somebody, whether you agree with that move or not, it's, it's, it's a completely different story. But, right. you know, look, basically describe that phenomenon through this sort of, of a pneumatological framework. Mm-hmm. And it's throughout the book of Acts, you know, spirit somehow moves them everywhere in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. So it's it's consistent throughout, the consistent theme mm-hmm. in the book of Acts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it says pulling out a little bit. Um, to me, these questions seem, like you said, your original kind of insight into some of these texts or what got you interested was your own experience of how of language being political, and especially maybe Christian language or language in the church being political. And I think today when we're so aware of the global nature of Christianity and the global church, these questions of multiplicity of language and translation, there's and you know, imperialism, 
you know, we we haven't talked about imperialism, yeah, but you yeah. basically associate the kind of monolingual approach with a sort of imperial kind of attitude in the sense of having one centralized Least authority the, yeah. that silences other authorities. Mm -hmm. It actually reminds me, there's a, I took, when I took a communications class here as an undergrad, I had an old communications prof named Richard Gnell. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if this was his idea or if he was taken from somewhere else, but he said the difference between a language and a dialect is that a language has an army. <laughs> I love that. That's I, good. You know, I think that kind of gets <laughs> at so something good. about yeah. why, um, yeah. how yeah. the centralization of language um, has a certain sort of broadly sort of, and sometimes a very specific sort of mm -hmm. imperial sort of resonance. So mm -hmm. um, when we think about the role of English in the global World. global Christianity, mm -hmm. those kind of things, um, it's all very, very, very relevant um, and high stakes too. And and I would add also, I think that's correct, but I would add also that, you know, even the United States. Yeah, you absolutely. Begin, you, sure. like, don't, go, don't go to globalized world. Right. But even in the United States. Right. Like with the influx of immigrants in the 19th century, the 20th century, more and more like, uh, you know, immigrants from all over the world coming to, to, to the United States. So the, the fact or the reality of the presence of linguistic other is very real. Mm -hmm. So I was uh, in Southern California and, uh, you know, in, a, in one ch church service and the pastor invited because, okay, let me step back. The, the, the church consists of different languages. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have Nigerian and, you know, Korean and Indonesian and Urdu-speaking people. So the pastor asked us to come to the altar and pray in our tongue. And he said, don't translate. Mm. It's There is a sense of disorientation, this very disorienting space. Why? Because especially, as, you know, for, for, for English-speaking people, like because you don't understand, you're, you're so used to the place where you understand everything. Mm -hmm. Whereas immigrants, sometimes we come to space, we don't understand what you're talking about. So we're so used to that disorientation of being in a space in which you don't understand the language. Mm -hmm. So he said, don't translate. So when they begin to pray one one, I was like, wow, this sounds like the book of Revelation. Mm that, you know, Revelation has this sort of vision of the lamb sitting on the throne and then, yeah. you know, people from every nation and people and languages right. around yeah. the, the, the lamb. So um, that triggers my imagination, right? Yeah. So, you know, we have been heard, we, we have heard a lot about the 11th hour in on Sunday morning is the mm. most segregate, segregated hour. Right. In the United States, right, uh, and most most sort of them people think about like racial skin color kind of right. segregation, but linguistic segregation is so real too. Yes, like you know Spanish speaking would worship on the on that corner over there, and then you know Indonesian and Korean and right. you know Urdu and or different languages. So, my challenge for the church today, not only for the society but also particular for the church, particularly in the United States, when one think of multicultural church. Why do we mean by that? What do we mean by that? Mm -hmm. Are we going to subject everyone to the dominance of English? Or we open that space, mm -hmm. which is hard to imagine, very disorienting, mm -hmm. for our worship service to be a multilingual worship. Mm -hmm. So I remember when I was in Southern California, I was a worship pastor, and not Southern California, sorry, in Tennessee. Mm. 
and then people get Tennessee and Southern California mixed up all the yeah, time. Yeah, because Southern probably. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes, you know, I was a worship pastor, and I'll you know I'll pick up songs from like uh, yeah that has Spanish because we have some Spanish speaking families in the in the church. And when I sang that song in Spanish, I you know my Spanish is not good, but I try. Mm-hmm. In English, my second language, Spanish is my third. I don't even speak good Spanish. So, but you know. After the service, this I remember this one man who is, is an elderly man who doesn't speak in English. He came to me and he said, and he thanked me for like singing the Spanish song. Mm-hmm. What how people can connect when they begin to express themselves mm-hmm. in their own language. Mm-hmm. So when we think about multilingual, oh sorry, multicultural church. Can we think about our church space as a hospitable space mm-hmm. for many languages? And we can tra- we can we can actually bring it to or take it to a, a broader our society these days, right? A bigger society in the United States. Mm-hmm. Can we think about the United States as a hospitable space for linguistic other? Mm-hmm. Because I've seen it over and over again when people speak like different language and somebody comes and like speak English here. Yeah. It's the force of like silencing. For yeah. We feel like we have to understand exactly. We want the data transfer. Yeah. We kind of want language to be data, to transfer. Be data transfer. What are you saying? Yeah. That kind of um, just pushing in language, just pushing information. Um, but I think what's beautiful about what you're saying in those moments of like not needing everything to be translated or yeah. not even needing it to be perfectly translated is we've been talking a lot about language and power or language is political and that's true, but language is also a very vulnerable thing completely. And I think to, to enter in, I think anyone who's tried to learn a new language has felt this to enter into a language where you don't have control requires trust. Oh yeah. And so when I hear you talking mm-hmm. about hospitality, I also think what you're saying is, can these become spaces where people trust each trust. other more too? I love that. I love um, the way you put it. So, and I, I appreciate, what I appreciate about your book is it's very challenging. You have a strong political challenge here um, mm-hmm. in this text, but it's also backed up by this. It's not just critique. There's also vision yeah. and it's a beautiful vision. Yeah. So thank you very much for sharing thank that you, in this book and in this podcast with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Yep. Anytime. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode.